Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to Talking Legal History. This is your host, Siobhan Barco. Today we will be discussing Paul Finkelman's book, Supreme Injustice, Slavery and the Nation's Highest Court. Dr. Finkelman is an American legal historian and the president of Gratz College. Dr. Finkelman, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a delight to be here. Could you begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself? Briefly, my academic training, I did a PhD in history at the University of Chicago, working under Stanley Katz, who is now uh, at the Wilson School of Princeton and a former president of the American Society for Legal History, and John Hope Franklin, who was a president, I think, of almost every historical society, but the American Society for Legal History. My dissertation was on the law of slavery. I later was a fellow in law and humanities at Harvard Law School. I spent about half my career teaching in history departments and half teaching in law schools. And now I am currently the president of Gratz College, which is the oldest independent Jewish college in the United States and is located in the greater Philadelphia area. So that's that's my background, and uh, I'm happy to talk at great length about all of this. Could you tell us about Chief Justice Taney's personal positions on slavery? and how this position interacted with his jurisprudence. So, Tawdy grows up on a plantation on the eastern shore of Maryland. He comes from a very elite background. His family has been in Maryland since the 1600s. His father owns something between 25 and 30 slaves, which in Maryland is a substantial number of slaves. He grows up with great privilege. He attends college in Pennsylvania, at Dickinson College, which is pretty unusual at the time for somebody to go off to a private college. There were colleges in Maryland by the time he's ready to go to college. He doesn't go to those. And he grows up with slavery. Slavery is part of his life, as is tobacco. At the same time, when he becomes an attorney, he seems to have some personal qualms about slave owning emancipates some, but not all, of his slaves. Again, most of the biographies of Tony assert without very much research that he freed all his slaves. That's not the case. Um, one of the best Tawny scholars, uh, Timothy Huebner, who's at um, Rhodes College in Memphis, has you know, found clearly that Tawny has had slaves. And for doing this book, I actually did something that historians should do more often. I went to the census. And the census shows slaves living in the 20 household in Washington. So he has slaves. He doesn't have a lot of them. He owns slaves his whole life. In his early career, there again may be some evidence of personal qualms about slavery so that he emancipates some slaves rather than selling them. So he may have some qualms about this. At this point in his career, he's a Federalist. And uh, Federalists tend to be less pro-slavery than Jeffersonians, Democrats. So that's part of his career. 
he famously defends a white Methodist minister who is prosecuted for allegedly giving an anti-slavery sermon at a public revival in Maryland. This is a man named Jacob Gruber. And again, people who are great fans of Tawney talk about Tawney as being anti-slavery. As legal historians know, people defend lots of people they don't agree with. So it's not about ideology. And furthermore, Tawney's defense is really about the right of white people to talk about things. It has nothing to do with slavery. It has nothing to do with race or anti-slavery. Tawney simply says Gruber has a right to express his religious views. This may, in fact, be much more a function of the fact that Tawney is Catholic in an overwhelmingly Protestant world, and he is defending a religious minority, Methodists. It's hard to imagine today Methodists seen as a minority, but in the first part of the 19th century they were, and so he's defending the Methodist minister, but he's not defending the rights of blacks or slaves. If that was a anti-slavery moment, and I don't believe it is, it was the last anti-slavery moment Roger Tawney ever has. After that, he becomes aggressively hostile to the presence of free blacks in the United States. He moves into the Democratic Party as, an, as a fervent supporter of Andrew Jackson. He is the probably the main author of Jackson's famous bank veto. He serves as Jackson's attorney general, and ultimately he goes to the Supreme Court. While he is attorney general, the question comes to Tawney whether or not a free black person can be given a passport. Tawney says no because he says free blacks can never be citizens of the United States, even if they are free, even if they are living in a state where they are allowed to vote, like at the time Pennsylvania or Massachusetts or New Hampshire or a number of other states. So Tawney is aggressively anti-black. Now this is very important to understand, because 25 years after he writes his opinion as Attorney General that blacks can't be citizens, he writes the Dred Scott decision. Dred Scott decision again asserts that free blacks born in the United States, allowed to vote, allowed to hold public office in their states, are not citizens of the United States. Many people who like Tawney, who somehow work around the horror of the Dred Scott decision, say things like, well, he was an old man at the time, can't judge him by the basis of this one opinion. But in fact, this one opinion is not an aberration. The one opinion is something that he's for his entire professional career. And on the court, he is aggressively pro-slavery. It culminates with Dred Scott, but as I point out in Supreme Injustice, Tawney is always hostile to black rights. And he twists constitutional law in different directions, depending upon the politics of the moment, in order to protect slavery. So to give two examples of this, in a fugitive slave case known as Abelman versus Heath, right before the Civil War, Tawney asserts that the northern states have absolutely no power to interfere with the enforcement of the 1850 Fugitive Slave Law and that the northern states must obey the law. And he essentially asserts that there's no such thing as states' rights. Once secession has taken place, Tawney hears Tucky versus Denison, 
which is a suit against the governor of Ohio, William Dennison, for not returning somebody to Kentucky who allegedly helped this slave escape from Kentucky. Suddenly, on the eve of the Civil War with secession already taking place, Tawney says, well, the federal government can't tell state governors what to do. So enablement, the federal government can tell states what to do in terms of fugitive slave returns. But in Denison, what he's afraid of is if he sides with Kentucky, he's giving Abraham Lincoln the power to force governors to act. During the Civil War, he is the best friend the South has. He is a secessionist in everything but name, and he does everything he can to overturn everything Lincoln does. Everybody knows about Dred Scott. What they don't know is that Dred Scott is the culmination of the career of making war on the rights of free black people and protecting slavery. And that after Dred Scott, he continues to do this right up until his death. Now could you tell us about Justice Joseph's story? Joseph's story is perhaps the surprise of this because he's from Massachusetts, he went to Harvard, he taught at Harvard Law School, he is a strong constitutional nationalist, and one would assume that Joseph's story would be a friend of anti-slavery. And if you look at the very early justice story, that is the case. In 1819 and 1820, while writing circuit in New England, he issues overwhelmingly anti-slavery charges to grand to go after slave traders uh, who would be violating the federal laws on the slave trade. He does this in dramatic language, and if the story had passed away shortly after these charges, he would be remembered as the most anti-slavery justice. In a case called La Jeune Jeunet, which involves a slave trading ship captured in Africa, towed to the United States, he condemns the slave trade as piracy, goes into great and and really horrifying details about what the slave trade involves, about you know, children being torn from the breast of their mothers, uh, men being killed for protecting their wives and children. It is really an anti-slavery story. And if you read, he is anti-slavery. He's right out there in front. And then at the end of the case, he backs away. Backs away in two ways. One is to say in the case as he had to lesser extent in the grand jury charges that it is not his place to condemn slavery. It is only his place to condemn the African trade because that's illegal. That's fine. That's correct constitutional law and he doesn't want to get too carried away. But he also says in the opinion that the United States is not going to make a determination about the ownership of the ship, La Jeune Instead, he is going to return it to the French government, even though, in his opinion, he points out that the French government is notorious for lending its flag to illegal slave trading. So, in other words, he condemns France, in the opinion, for the way France behaves in suppressing the trade, but then, in the end, says, well, we'll let the French handle this. The likelihood is that La Jeune ship is returned to France and then is returned to the French residents of Guadalupe in Caribbean who claim to be the owners of the ship. In fact, the overwhelming evidence is the ship is secretly owned by Americans and the French are simply 
phony owners for the purpose of engaging in the trade. I should add one other piece. In between the charges to the grand juries and the La Jeune is the Missouri crisis and the debates over the Missouri Compromise. And in this period, Story gives public speeches attacking the emerging Missouri Compromise, attacking allowing slavery to spread into Missouri. And he complains that the members of Congress from Massachusetts have forgotten that they are New Englanders, that they are essentially spineless politicians who won't stand up to Southern philosophy. Oddly enough, after Lajunet, Story never lifts his hand to attack slavery. And in the rest of his career, he would become the handmaiden of slavery and be very pro-slavery. Now, I have to talk about two cases in this regard. The first is the honesty, because everybody knows the honesty as this great anti-slavery case. And we know about it not because very many people, not legal historians, but others, haven't actually read the opinion. They've seen Stan Spielberg's movie, which is a movie full of historical fantasy and things that are made up. And Amistad becomes this great anti-slavery case. The struggle of abolitionists to protect the Africans on the Amistad, who become known as the Amistads, the struggle to protect the Amistads is a great anti-slavery victory. It's an organizational tour de force. The abolitionists raise money, they find an expert witness, they find lawyers, they protect these Africans, they fight the U.S. government. In the end, they beat the U.S. government because all of the law and all of the facts are on their side. And one would have had to have been beyond dishonest to have reached any other conclusion. Gets appealed to the Supreme Court, and Story writes the opinion. And Story upholds the treaties, which say that we would have to return slaves to Cuba if they were Cuban slaves, and then upholds the conclusion of the district court that these were never slaves. He also orders the return to slavery cabin boy on the ship, who is a Cuban slave. There is virtually nothing in this that smacks of anti-slavery. Now, Story may have strategically decided this was the best way to decide the case. We don't know, because we can't get into Story's head. However, the following year, Story decides Prig versus Pennsylvania. This is a case which involves a woman from Maryland who is raised free, who is never claimed as a slave by anyone, who marries a free black man from Pennsylvania, who is listed in the U.S. Census as a free woman of color, along with her two children. And that census was taken by the county sheriff in Maryland, so he believes she's free. Everybody believes she's free. In 1832, she moves with her husband back to his home in Pennsylvania. She lives in York, Pennsylvania for a few years and then is seized by a group of men coming from Maryland, one of whom now claims her as the slave of his mother-in-law. And the whole family is brought before Justice of the Peace of Pennsylvania. Justice of the Peace of Pennsylvania says that you have no evidence that these people are slaves, you have no evidence of ownership, and I'm not going to let you take them out of Pennsylvania. One of them was her husband, who was a freeborn black who grew up in Pennsylvania. Another one is a new child who was born in Pennsylvania and under Pennsylvania law was born and free. Uh, the woman's name is Margaret Walker. 
The Marylanders then seize Margaret and her children, but not Jerry, because they realize Jerry is a freeborn person. They bring her back to Maryland. She is eventually sold. Pennsylvania indicts Craig and the other Marylanders for kidnapping. After a number of years of negotiations, Maryland returns only Craig. And part of the deal is that Craig will not be incarcerated if he's convicted. Craig is convicted. Pennsylvania Supreme Court issues a pro forma affirmance of the case. Uh, unfortunately, there's no opinion. I wish there were. It would have helped clarify things. And it goes to the Supreme Court. Story writes an opinion in overwhelmingly pro slavery and intellectually incredibly dishonest. He claims, for example, that every Northern State Supreme Court that has heard a case under the 1793 Fugitive Slave Law has upheld the law. This is, in fact, not true. And, in fact, a New York decision just a few years before this said that the Fugitive Slave Law of 1793 was unconstitutional. Story cites this to prove that Northern courts believe it is constitutional. Uh, I can only imagine what Story would have done if a student in his constitutional law class at Harvard, which he taught when he wasn't sitting in the court, uh, had written this, whether Story would have pounded the student or misrepresented what would have been the case. Nor does Story recognize the fact that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court has just upheld a law interfering with the return of a slave under the federal law because the Pennsylvania court has questions about the constitutionality of the law. Furthermore, a few years before Craig, the Chief Justice of New Jersey, in a an opinion which was not published but was in newspapers and readily available, had said that the 1793 law is unconstitutional. So story, he misstates the facts of the case, and then he proceeds to conclude that the 1793 Fugitive Slave Law is constitutional, and that every northern jurisdiction has a moral and constitutional obligation to enforce it, although he does say, because northern judges and police officials are not paid by the U.S. government, they can't be forced to enforce a federal law. This is the first anti-commandeering case in uh, American legal history. So in Prig, Story says the 1793 law is constitutional, but he then goes on to say that Southerners capturing their fugitive slaves do not have to follow the law. They have a common law right of recaption to seize a fugitive slave wherever they find the slave and have a common law right to bring their slave back to the South without any judicial superintendence, as long as they do it without a, quote, breach of the peace. This is sort of like the old philosophical question. If a tree falls in the woods and nobody hears it, does it make any noise? If you go to the cabin of a black family in the middle of the night and bang them on the head and tie them up and then put them in a wagon and start heading south, has there been a breach of the peace when the only people to notice it are the victims of the breach? Story essentially sets the stage for kidnapping anywhere in the North by any Southerner who wants to grab a black and bring that person into the South. Story further says that no Northern state may interfere in any way in the return of a fugitive slave. This means that if a slave catcher grabs a free black, the Northern police officials cannot stop the person being brought back to the South. 
abolitionists believe that Craig is the worst decision the Supreme Court has ever made until Dred Scott, and possibly for the actual lives of black people in the North, Craig is worse than Story then in Massachusetts vigorously enforces the federal freedom of slave law while writing circuits, and he is aptly called in the Liberator the slave catcher in chief and hated by abolitionists. The footnote to all this is after Story dies, his son, William Wentworth Story, publishes a book called The Life and Letters of Joseph Story. And in this two-volume book, he publishes many of his father's letters and some of his father's opinions and a kind of biography of his father. And in the book, he says that his father always considered Craig to be a anti-slavery opinion. So I'll read from the book. After Story's death, his son William Weltmore Story claimed that his father, quote, repeatedly and earnestly spoke, quote, of Craig as, quote, a triumph of freedom. And the reason it was a triumph of freedom is because William Wentmore Story said, because Story had said that the northern states could not be forced to return fugitive slaves and could not be forced to help in the process of returning fugitive slaves, that this was a triumph of freedom because northern states would run away from the law and the law could not be enforced without local help. There is not a shred of external evidence for William Wentworth Story's claim. To believe the claim, you'd have to believe that a Supreme Court justice who spent his entire life dedicated to the rule of law sought to undermine his opinion in Craig, even as he wrote the opinion. This is preposterous, and nobody could believe it because it's implausible. But furthermore, and this is kind of like the late night TV ads where they're selling you something and they say, wait, there's more. Well, here there's more. Because during this period, Story writes a letter to uh, Senator John McPherson Berrien of North Carolina, in which he spends the first half of the letter talking about new laws needed for the judiciary. And William Wetmore's story publishes the first half of the letter in the Life and Letters of Joseph's story, showing how his father was always engaged in the legal system and the rule of law. He does not publish the second half of the letter. And clearly he knows about it because he published the letter but doesn't publish the second half. In the second half, story offers a solution to the problem of print. In other words, he says to Barry that what Congress needs to do is to pass a law which creates federal commissioners and to confer upon these federal commissioners the power to do anything that state judges can do under federal law, such as enforce the 1793 law. And he tells Barry that if you do this, you don't even have to mention the fugitive slave law, so it won't become politically obvious what you're doing. So here we have story, not seeing Craig as a triumph, but explaining to a Southern senator that he realizes there's a problem with this case, but that there's an easy solution, so it won't be a triumph of freedom, it will remain a triumph of slavery. And this is Story's legacy. Uh, and it's very hard, I think, for scholars to wrap their heads around this, because Story is seen as the justice for New England. He's not. He becomes 
the pro-slavery justice who happened to have grown up in New England. And it's a tragedy. There are many explanations for this. One is simply the story believed that he needed to do this to preserve the Union. But in the 1840s, there was no pressing secessionist movement. And Story could easily have written an opinion in which she supported the 1793 law and still said that states have a right to prevent kidnapping of their own citizens. He doesn't do that. Story is willing to throw under the bus, so to speak, 170,000 free black people living in the North. And he doesn't care. How did Justice Story's version of history differ in Prigby, Pennsylvania? from his commentaries on the Constitution of the United States. How did it differ from Madison's notes on the Constitutional Convention? Oh, great questions. I'm glad you asked. So, in 1833, Story publishes his magnum opus, Commentaries on the Constitution. And in that book, he says the Fugitive Slave Clause was essentially a gift that the northern states gave the southern states with nothing in return and this was done because it shows that the northern states respected the southern institution of slavery. This actually happens to be true. And if you read Madison's notes of the Constitutional Convention, which appear three years later, that's exactly what happened. That the fugitive slave clause is stuck into the Constitution at the very end. There's no debate. There's no argument. It's passed without even a vote. And there's no quid pro quo. It's not an exchange for anything. However, when he writes Prigg, he says that the Fugitive Slave Clause was an essential element of the Constitution, and without this clause, the Constitution could not have been signed or ratified, and was absolutely necessary. This is complete nonsense. There's not a shred of evidence for this. Furthermore, in the 1780s, there are almost no fugitive slaves, because the southern states are surrounded in part by existing slave states. So if slavery is still legal in Pennsylvania, it is completely legal in New Jersey. It's legal in New York. So to get completely away from slavery, a slave would have had to run all the way to Massachusetts or New Hampshire. Now that's a very long run without railroads, without steamers. Most fugitive slaves are inside slave states. They're not running to free states. And if they are running to free states, they're running to either southern New Jersey or southern Maryland, or maybe getting on a ship to go to New York, which is still a slave state. Furthermore, a number of free states have already passed laws helping southerners return to states. So stories claiming things nonsense. It's not based on anything other than stories' desire to convince the North to accept Prigg. And here's the difference. In 1833, Story is trying to get the South to go nationalist. This is in part in the wake of the nullification crisis with South Carolina. And Story is telling Southerners, look, we Northerners have always been good to you. We've always been your friends. You should love the Union. In Craig, Story is trying to get Northerners to swallow a horrendous decision that jeopardizes the liberty of 170,000 Northern blacks, jeopardizes their white neighbors, jeopardizes communities. So he's telling the Northerners, you have to accept my version of history because it's the basis for you. He's lying. Now, could you tell us about 
Chief Justice John Marshall's positions on slavery? John Marshall is the most interesting person in this book, I think. When I began this book, I knew what I was going to say about story for 20. I was less certain about what I would say about Marshall. This book stems from my Nathan Huggins lectures at Harvard University. And I gave the lectures, one on Marshall, one on Story, and one on Tawny. And it took me a number of years to turn the lectures into a book because I was uncertain how to approach Marshall. Marshall didn't appear to have heard very many cases of slavery. He didn't appear to own very many slaves. And there were only a few slave cases to write about. I knew this because I'd read the biographies of Marshall. Finally, I did what I should have done at the very beginning, which is to, instead of reading the biographies, to actually look at Marshall's life itself. One of the things I discovered, in fact, Marshall heard many cases on slavery. There are 14 cases involving black freedom come before the Supreme Court under Marshall. His biographers say there's only a couple. I don't know how they miss the other ones. There's plain as day if you start reading the West reports. They are all there. Of these 14 cases, Marshall is the author of the opinion in seven of them. In all seven slaves lose, including cases where they had won their freedom in a jury trial, usually in the District of Columbia, by a jury of 12 white Southern men, some of whom would have been slave owners, in a court presided over by a slaveholding judge. Marshall always finds a way to reverse these decisions. In one case involving a statute, Marshall says that the statute could be legitimately read one way or the other. And when you read this, you think, well, Marshall's going to find freedom. Instead, he turns around and decides the person is still a slave and the master doesn't have to give up his property. In another case, there is a slave in Washington, D.C., whose mother turns out to always have been free. Maryland court has ruled that the mother is free because she was always free. She was never a slave. Therefore, her son was not born a slave under Maryland law. And when he was sold to somebody who moved to the District of Columbia, he was illegally sold because he was illegally a slave. He goes into court in the District of Columbia and wins his freedom easily because the law in every southern state is the same. If your mother was not a slave, you can't be a slave doesn't matter if you're black or not. You only can be a slave if your mother's a slave. Chief Justice Marshall writes the opinion reversing this outcome. And he claims that the buyer of the slave has no privity, and it's not clear what the privity would be here, to the Maryland decision. During the oral arguments, Justice Gabriel Duval asserts that under Maryland law, the rule is always the same. If the mother is proven to have always been free, the slave only has to prove dissent. Duval had been Chief Justice of Maryland before he went on the Supreme Court. Marshall ignores Duval's position, even though this is a case that is being decided in Washington, D.C., based on Maryland law, because the local law in Washington was Maryland law on one side of the Potomac and was local Virginia law on the other. The former Chief Justice of Maryland is saying this is how we should decide it over Maryland law. Marshall ignores all this. Now, if in fact the owner of the slave had a complaint 
he should have brought it to the person who illegally sold him the slave in the first place, because slaves are always warranted as slaves for life. The owner had an easy economic claim, go back to the person who bought the slave from and sue that person for the value of the slave, because the person wasn't a slave at all. But rather than follow Maryland law, or what would have been the same in Virginia law, or what would have been the same in any slave state in the United States, Marshall finds a way to uphold the slave status of somebody who was born of a free mother. There is no other case like this in the United States. It is simply an outrage on due process and fundamental justice and the rule of law. The following year, there's another case based on Maryland law uh, known as Nima Queen. Nima Queen claims to be the descendant of a woman who was also free. She wants to bring the case in the District of Columbia courts because that's where she lives, but it's based on Maryland law. The District of Columbia judge will not allow her to introduce hearsay evidence. Marshall upholds his saying that if hearsay evidence is used, then all property in the United States would be jeopardized. Duval writes his only dissent in his career on the court, a scathing dissent, again pointing out that under Maryland law, slaves are always allowed to bring hearsay evidence into court because, as Duval says, it's the only evidence they have. And then the jury can decide the value of the evidence. But you don't take the only evidence away from slaves that they have. And he points out they don't have any other, other evidence because we don't allow them to read and write. They can't bring in documentary evidence. Again, had the case gone the other way, didn't necessarily mean Nina Queen would be free. It would only mean she got her day in court. Marshall would not allow this. Now, there are seven other cases involving black freedom. One is decided by Justice Johnson and the black loses in that case. The others are decided late in Marshall's career when he no longer dominates the court. And in those cases, black freedom is upheld. Two of them are written by slaveholding justices. So it's not about whether you're a slaveholder or not. It's about whether you're John Marshall or not. And this leads to the other profound discovery in this book. Every single biography of John Marshall claims that he owned about a dozen house servants, as they're often called, in Richmond. There is one scholar who has written that John Marshall owned no slaves at all. I don't quite understand why that scholar reached this conclusion. It's written, and it's in one of the Oliver Wendell Holmes devised histories of the Supreme Court. But everybody else said he owned no slaves. I read his will very carefully. In his will, he names a dozen slaves. It actually names 15 plus unnamed children of another slave. So it's 18. Then he proceeds to divvy up the rest of his property. Gives land to one son, gives land to a nephew, says he was going to give land to another son, but instead he's going to put it in trust. And in all three of these bequests, the land includes the slaves living on the land. After some significant research in the census records and the property tax records, and here I was aided by a woman named Candace Gray, who was a graduate student at Morgan State University, who helped me do this research, and I owe a tip of the hat to her. From this research, I conclude that John Marshall, at the time of his death, 
holds between 150 and 200 souls. In addition, by this time, we know that he has given at least 27 slaves to one son, that he has auctioned off a number of other slaves for another son, that he probably gave as many as 40 slaves to another son, and he probably gave other slaves to other sons. So John Marshall has been buying slaves his whole life. And in his diaries, which we have from the 1780s and 1790s, he often talks about buying a slave here, buying a slave there. Uh, ironically, there are two times on July 4th, Independence Day, when John Marshall celebrates American independence by buying slaves. So here we have a man who has spent his entire life buying and selling human beings, being very quiet about them, sending them all off to his plantations in the countryside, sending them out of the neighborhood, not bragging about them, filling the farms of his sons and his relatives with slaves. And so when he hears these freedom suits, they somehow make sense, because Marshall can see himself buying a slave later turns out to be free. And while I have no documentary evidence of this, it seems logical that when Marshall hears the case of a slave who says, my mother was always free, Marshall puts himself in the shoes of the slave owner and says, I don't want to lose my slaves when I buy them. So that's the story of John Marshall. Could you discuss why the Constitution was a pro-slavery document, but still allowed for ways to hem in slavery? prevent its expansion, suppress the African slave trade, and protect free blacks. And what might have happened if Chief Justice Marshall, Justice Story, and Chief Justice Taney had made different jurisprudential choices in mediating between slavery and freedom in American law? As I've written in many other places, including my book Slavery and the Founders, this Constitution is pro-slavery. It protects slavery at every turn. It gives the South extra representation in Congress from the slaves. It gives the South extra votes in the Electoral College because that's based on the three-fifths clause. It promises federal support to suppress slave rebellions, which takes place during Nat Turner's rebellion, during John Brown's reign. It promises that fugitive slaves cannot be freed, but should be returned on demand. And as a government of limited powers, it prevents the national government from ending slavery. It would be easy to simply say, well, the justices on the court were simply implementing a pro-slavery constitution. But even within these pro-slavery provisions, there is room for compromise. There is room for uh, mediating between slavery and freedom. So if we think about Craig versus Pennsylvania, story could have written that yes, the fugitive slave laws constitution. Yes, masters have to have a right to recover the fugitive slaves. But free states also have a right to demand due process. They have a right to a hearing to determine whether the person is actually a slave. Or story might the fugitive slave laws really operates between the states, and Congress has no power to enforce the fugitive slave law. We could have pointed out that in Article 4 of the Constitution, there are four sections. Three of them specifically authorize Congress to pass legislation to enforce those sections. Other section, which includes the Fugitive Slave Law, has no enforcement provision whatsoever. Similarly, Congress has the power after 1808 
to end the African slave trade if it so desires. It does so. Nevertheless, in every single slave trading case where John Marshall writes the opinion, the slave traders are not punished, and the illegally imported Africans remain slaves. Even in cases where lower courts have declared that the illegally imported Africans should go back to Africa because they're free, Marshall finds ways to overturn this. So the court could have been more vigorous on the African slave trade. And that would not even upset the section of balance. Because with the exception of a few extremists in South Carolina, Louisiana, and Mississippi, nobody in the South is demanding the reopening of the African slave trade. Marshall could have been very hard on enforcing the African slave trade. So there are lots of ways in which the court provided us with the jurisprudence that would have mediated slavery. And that could have had a long-term effect on the nation. Because if Southerners had known from the very beginning that slave-owning justices like Marshall were going to be fair about issues of slavery, then perhaps the Southern attitude that we get everything we want, we always win, would not have become ingrained in Southern politics. And Marshall, who is, after all, a Virginian and a slave owner and a person who does not like the presence of free blacks in the United States, had asserted this sort of jurisprudence. We could have had a very different history. All right. Well, I really want to thank you for being on the show today. You're very welcome. It's been a delight.